You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, everybody. Thank you for hanging out on our Rewind Week here at Earn and Invest. We are bringing back an episode with JL Collins that was recorded earlier this year. This is a really fun episode for a few reasons. One, it was recorded live at Kabanda in his place in Wisconsin. The other is that this was pre-COVID and pre-recession. So it's really cool to listen to his take on recessions, investing, and even the financial independence community, and then to juxtapose them on what is happening today. I think you'll find that his words are as wise as ever and just as important now as they were then. Also, I want to make sure everyone knows this was recorded when we were still branded as What's Up Next. So we are now the Earn and Invest podcast, but because this is a rewind, you will hear some of that branding. I hope you sit back, take a listen. This was an incredibly fun episode to record, and I hope you have just as much fun listening to it as I did putting it together with JL live from Kabanda. This is JL Collins, and you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Picture this. I'm walking into Camp Fi in 2018, and this is the first Camp Fi that I've ever gone to. And I'm excited about meeting some of my idols. Physician on Fire is going to be there. Carl, Mr. 1500 is going to be there. I've been talking to them both online, and I'm excited to see them in person. Out of the corner of my eye, I see a figure walk through the doorway. And there is J.L. Collins. Now, I've never met J.L. Collins before. I've never interacted with him on the internet, yet I know what he looks like. And I have to admit, I had a little bit of trepidation. And the reason why is when you meet a legend in person, and let me tell you, J.L. Collins is a legend, I always worry that their online personality and persona won't be exactly what they are when I meet them in real life. So believe it or not, I was doing my best to avoid him. I was walking around, speaking to other people, and I ended up talking to this lovely lady. And we were talking and talking, and about five minutes into it, I realized that I was talking to Jane Collins, J.L. Collins' wife. Now, right at that moment, I knew that I didn't need to have any trepidation. Because if this lovely lady was who he was married to, his real-life personality must have been just as good as his online personality. Now, over the next few days, I had several conversations with JL and found out that, believe it or not, he's more kind and gregarious and wonderful in person than he is even online. And speaking of community, before we get into the meat of the interview, I just wanted to remind about the What's Up Next 
Facebook group. You can find us by going to the website diversify.com backslash Facebook. That's D-I-V-E-R-S-E-F-I dot com backslash Facebook. If you like the conversations and panels we have here at the What's Up Next podcast, we continue the conversation in the Facebook group. There are postings multiple times a day, and it's a real great place for the community to come together and discuss all the important issues of the day. How do I introduce J.L. Collins? He's been dubbed the godfather of the financial independence movement. His book, The Simple Path to Wealth, is arguably one of the most important personal finance books of this century. His stock series on J.L. Collins NH has taught countless people how to invest. I feel lucky to call him my friend. J.L. Collins, welcome back to the What's Up Next podcast. Wow, I am sitting here literally blushing as you go through that introduction. That is more than kind, a little bit of fabrication. <laughs> Nobody should take it as as gospel, that's that's for sure, other than the part that I'm I'm married to an exceptionally lovely woman, but I'm honored to be back. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to describe the situation here for our listeners. We are sitting almost shoulder to shoulder so that we can both pick up on this microphone that we're holding. I'm looking out a bay window and there's a little swatch of grass in front of me and then Lake Michigan crashes against the beach. It's a little bit of a windy day. This is December in Wisconsin and I can't help but think this is Kabanda. Kabanda in some ways to me seems like the house that financial independence built. Yet, J.L., when you wrote about this the first time, you wrote a post called Mr. Anti-House Buys His Dream House. And I'm wondering, is there a contradiction here? Well, I suppose there is a contradiction because while most of my adult life I have owned houses because they fit the lifestyle that I wanted at a particular time when my daughter was younger, for instance, for school districts and that sort of thing. But once she went off to college, I, I... never particularly liked owning houses, and I sort of swore off owning them and went back to the more carefree life of being a renter. But we'd been coming up to this stretch of beach in Lake Michigan for literally a decade as my wife's sister and her husband have a place, and we just love this particular uh, this particular part of the world. And we sort of very casually started looking at houses the last few years that we'd gone up to, to stay at their house, and, and this little shack that came on the market. The next thing I knew, I went from being completely nomadic and homeless to having a house again. But this one is actually mostly an investment that we Airbnb or actually VRBO, and, and then uh, we use it part of the year, so it's kind of a stop on our nomadic travels. You call this a shack, and in fact, I believe Kabanda means what the shack on the lake. This is nothing like a shack. It's a beautiful house on Lake Michigan with its own beach, and it makes me wonder about this idea of indulgence. Does financial independence preclude indulgence? So first of all, as far as I know, the word Kabanda, it's a Swahili word, and we were looking for a Swahili word. My my wife's sister's place, they call Shamba, which it's kind of a country shack out in the middle of nowhere, and I've always liked that name. And so when we got this place, we were looking for another Swahili word. And Kaband evidently means a lot of different things in Swahili, and different Swahili speakers I've spoken to give it a different definition. But one of the definitions is is shack by the lake or shack by water or something. Anyway, no, I don't think indulgence is contrary to 
the whole FI movement. In fact, in many ways, it's it's what it's all about. But indulgence comes in many different fashions. The first and most important for me was my freedom, was my time. And that was the first thing I bought with my money. But if you, in fact, invest your money, as I describe in my book and my blog, over time, you wind up having a fair amount of money and that allows you to indulge in other things. And a lot of people indulge in travel and houses and all kinds of things. And it allowed us to buy this this particular little beach house. Now, it, it is a, a lovely place, but it is, in fairness, a shack. It was built in 1939 as a as literally a shack on the beach and has been tacked on at various points in time and it's a little bit ramshackle. And certainly compared to some of the mansions that you find along the lake, it's it's a shack in comparison. But it is one of the most modest places you'll find on this stretch of beach. Often in the financial independence community, I hear people talk about opportunity cost. And occasionally you'll see someone in a Facebook group or somewhere talk about an quote unquote indulgence that they bought. And the next thing you know, there are a bunch of replies about the opportunity cost. Well, if you just didn't buy that luxurious thing and put the money in VTSAX in 20 years, you'd have $100,000 or a million dollars. Do you buy this opportunity cost argument? Not only do I buy it, I think I was one of the very first people in the community to make it. Uh, at least when I started making the the uh, making the point of opportunity cost, I had certainly not seen anybody else make it up until that point. And that's possible somebody else had. Opportunity cost is a very real thing in every financial decision you make. Because if you spend money on anything, including investments, it precludes spending it on something else. And that is simply what the opportunity cost is. And in my manifesto on the blog, I have a line that says something to the effect of every decision isn't about the money, but you should always be aware of the money decision you're making. So what I mean by that is being on the path to FI and even being frugal doesn't mean that you never spend money. It just means that you're very careful about how you spend money and you spend it, in my view at least, from a position of power. And what I mean by that is that you are spending money in a way and on things that you can easily afford. So as I mentioned, Cabanda is one of the more modest houses along this lakefront. We could have afforded something considerably more expensive, but we couldn't have necessarily bought that from a position of power. In buying this modest little shack at a fairly low price, at least comparatively, it took up less of our resources and therefore we're buying it from a position of power. Is there an opportunity cost to it? Absolutely. But it's a, it's a trade-off that I'm willing to make. But I'm willing to make it after carefully considering the opportunity cost and being keenly aware that that's the decision I'm making. Would it be safe to say that opportunity costs don't only apply to finances, but they're lost opportunities when it comes to experiences and even ownership? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, opportunity cost is probably most easily identified in a financial mathematical fashion because you can put numbers directly to it. But anytime you make a choice in life, if you're if you're working at a job and you get an offer to go to a different company or a different organization, well, there's an opportunity cost in whatever decision you make. When we bought Kabanda, uh, that meant that at least for some of the year, we were committing ourselves to coming to this particular part of the world for part of the year as opposed to our otherwise 
completely nomadic travels that might have taken us who knows where. And there's an opportunity cost, I guess, to that. So yeah, you always have to be aware of any decision you make in life, there, there are trade-offs. And you also have to be a little careful about that because when you look backwards, there's always the tendency to think, well, gee, if I'd gone left instead of right or, or taken this path instead of that path, things would have been better. Well, of course, you don't know that because we don't know what that path would have been like. So I want to move from one exotic-sounding affair to another. We talked about Kabanda, but there is another exotic word associated with your name, and that is Chautauqua. Tell us about what Chautauqua is, and more importantly, what it has come to mean to you. Chautauqua is an annual event that I created back in 2012 when we did the first one in 2013 in Ecuador. And basically, uh, the concept is that we would go to a really cool place, we would hang out with really cool people, and we'd talk about interesting things. And the way it works is that I gather four speakers, I'm one of the four speakers, and we find a really cool place initially in Ecuador and now at various parts in in Europe. Uh, We're planning to go to Croatia in 2020 and make it available to a limited number of people, no more than 30, who decide to sign up and come and join us for a week. And we spend a week together in a really cool venue and in a cool country. and, And we get to know each other and hang out and talk about things that are of interest to us, which are frequently aligned with financial independence, but not entirely, not exclusively. The thing that people who, at- who have attended Chautauqua tell me is most compelling for them, is most rewarding for them, is that maybe for the first time in their life, frequently for the first time in their life, they're surrounded by other people who get it. They don't have to explain themselves. Most of us walking this FI path are walking it alone, and, the, and our family and friends in our immediate circle just don't quite understand it. And it can be a very difficult and awkward conversation. You come to Chautauqua and for a week you're with people who absolutely understand it. So you don't have to spend any time trying to explain that. You can immediately go to a a different and and, uh, more productive and more interesting level. Is it a mistake to think of Chautauqua as just a financial conference? I, you know, it's kind of, I, I would think so. It's kind of a hybrid. I mean, we certainly talk about financial things there. Uh, when I give my talk, each of the speakers, of course, gives a talk, and my talk takes the format of Q&A, and we talk about financial kinds of questions, but that's only one part of what of what we talk about. A lot of it is is life in general, and especially life if you're on the FI path or if you've achieved FI. The people who come to Chautauqua, it's one of the great privileges of my life is I've met amazing people because amazing people come to Chautauqua with their own stories and journeys and and uh, in fact, coolest thing for the people who attend Chautauqua is not meeting me or the other speakers. It's not even the cool places we go or the great food or the venue. It's their fellow Chautauquans. And, and most often they become very close friends and, and, and sometimes business partners and project partners with a few of them. So, yeah, that's the magic is in the people. And I have to say, when you talk about Chautauqua, I see you get more animated and your eyes light up, maybe more than talking about other personal finance experiences. When you look at what your legacy will be, does Chautauqua play a big role in that? <laughs> well, I, I don't, I don't actually think about having a legacy. That seems like a like a pretty big word, and 
And I've never honestly thought in those terms. My eyes light up around Chautauqua because it's the initial concept was was a very simple and humble one. And I, I thought, hey, if I could get you know, 25, 30 people to come to Ecuador for a week, and we did it one time, and they were fun people, and I'd call that a win. I never dreamed that it would evolve in, into the event that it's evolved into, and it's it's immensely gratifying to see the impact it has on the lives of the people who choose to attend it. And as I said a moment ago, I mean, it's allowed me to meet some incredible people that I never would have had the opportunity to meet before and to become friends with. So nothing to do with my legacy, I don't think in those terms, but that's why my eyes light up. Now, attending Chautauqua is not necessarily the easiest thing, right? There are a bunch of barriers to it. One is the cost. Another is the exotic locale. And last but not least, there's only a limited number who, of people who can actually sign up and go. Is that intentional? You know, other than the last one, the limited number of people, no, it was it was not intentional, at least not intentionally set his barriers. You know, I've said sort of half-jokingly, but it's also true that Chautauqua is exactly what I want Chautauqua to be, and that means that we take it to places that I find interesting and it costs whatever it costs to to run it at those at those places. Now, one of the unintended consequences of that, which has turned out I think to be a benefit, is that it does provide some barriers and filters, if you will. And I think that's one of the reasons that we've consistently got really interesting and committed and and cool people. That's not to say that they're all wealthy, by the way. Some of them have been extraordinarily wealthy. Some of them have been very early on their journey uh, to FI. So we have quite a, a variety of people in, along the spectrum of wealth. The other thing that I take great pride in Chautauqua about is the diversity of people who come to it. It's It's truly amazing. I mean, on any measure of human diversity, it's whether it's race, age, religion, sexual orientation, all that variety is represented in the people who come to Chautauqua. And that's, I think, one of the things that, that at least for me, makes it a particularly fascinating and, and uh, enjoyable experience. But yeah, I, unintentionally, we wound up having some barriers that seem to keep people who I might not want to spend a week with away. Now, I noticed this year that your wife and daughter attended at least one session with you. Is that right? Yeah, this year, uh, 2019, we did three Chautauquas. We did uh, the first one in the spring in the UK, and uh, my wife Jane was there. And then we did two weeks back-to-back in Portugal in the fall, and both Jane and uh, Jessica were at both of those. And then the year before, uh, Jane and Jessica were at both We We did it in Greece two weeks back-to-back, and Jane and Jessica were at both those weeks as well. Talk to me a little bit about how your financial independence journey has affected your family. How do you think they've been affected by this path you've taken? Well, I'm not sure if you're referring to my journey since I started the blog in 2011 or the journey that I really started when I first got out of college because living modestly, saving 50% of your income and investing it, which is what I did. Uh, leads to financial security. Although we led a, a fairly modest life, but that was fine. We, you know, didn't want for anything that was important. Since 2011, the starting the blog and the whole FI thing, which I wasn't aware that there was an FI thing until I 
started my blog. Uh, I'm not sure it has affected them all that much anyway. My daughter was an adult by then or in college and wife is, I mean, Jane and I have been married for 37 years. So it was just the same old, same old, her husband going out and doing something new and crazy. So I'm not sure it made too much difference. Now, from talking to you, I know that the blog was originally a series of posts, almost like a financial love letter to your daughter. Do you think it had the intended effect? Yeah, absolutely. When I started the blog, I had I had begun writing letters to my daughter about financial things that uh, she was not prepared to hear from me. I had kind of started too early and pushed too hard and turned her off to it. And I wanted to make sure the information was available to her when the time came that she was ready to hear it. And then a friend of mine who I shared some of this stuff with said, wow, this is pretty interesting. You ought to put it on a blog. I'd never seen a blog before. I'd heard of them. And so I kind of vaguely knew what one was. But what appealed to me was the idea of archiving the information. And I never dreamed that I'd have the audience that I have today or that I'd have any audience at all. Um, But to answer your question, I, I think, yes, as my daughter got older and she was able to come at it as an adult and read it. She's now firmly on the FI path herself, and so it's taken hold. And she loves to tease me, by the way, because there have been enormous blessings that have come into my life since starting the blog. I mean, the blog is one of them. Out of the blog came my book, which has been successful. And of course, also out of the blog came Chautauqua, which was just talking about, and that's been a great joy for me. And my daughter has fallen into the habit of reminding me that had she listened to me when she was a child and paid attention, I never would have had the motivation or the need to write any of this stuff. And so none of these blessings would be in my life. I owe it to her unwillingness to pay attention to her father. I think a lot of us in the audience, too, find it fairly amazing that your blog and all the content you've put out there was fairly unintentional. It was intended for your daughter. And yet we as a community have found a lot of good there. So I guess we can all thank your daughter for originally not listening to you and having that dance that daughters and fathers have had for centuries of shaking their heads, saying, yeah, yeah, and moving on, which is something I know my son and daughter are definitely working at as teenagers right now. Your effect on our community was unintended, and yet it's been a huge effect. In fact, some people have gone as far as giving you the moniker, uh, the godfather of Phi. Does your family tease you about that at all? Yeah, initially they did. And and I have to say, uh, Christie of Millennial Revolution was the Christie and Bryce of Millennial Revolution were the first people to, to start referencing me that way. And I, and I have to admit that I've gotten used to it, but initially it, it made me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm fine with it now and I'm even, even flattered by it. And I suppose I took a little bit of teasing from my family, but they're past that. Whether you want to argue or not about that moniker, we all know that there is a godfather in the investing world, and that's Jack Bogle. You've written a number of posts on your blog about Jack Bogle. Tell me a little bit about what he means to you as a person and what his passing meant. I love that question. A few years ago on my blog, I had one of my readers made a comment, and they very flatteringly compared me to Jack Bogle. It said something like, you're the new Jack Bogle or you're like Jack Bogle. And and my response to that was, if I've lit a candle in the darkness, 
it's a shabby comparison to the white hot sun that was Jack Bogle's contribution. And the difference is enormous because Jack Bogle was the one who conceived the idea of index funds, who initially understood how powerful they could be. He's the guy who created the first index fund. He's the guy who created Vanguard. I'm the guy that's written about it a little bit. I mean, the, the gulf between our accomplishments uh, and what we brought to investors is, is enormous. I'm immensely flattered anytime somebody mentions me in the same breath as, as Jack Bogle. But Jack Bogle is, in my view, a fiscal saint. There is nobody who has done more for the individual investor, not only in the United States, but around the world, than Jack Bogle. The investment world was an entirely different place before he came along and, and brought Vanguard. It was a place that was designed mostly to enrich the people who sold the investments. And Jack Bogle's concept was maybe we ought to enrich the people who actually make the, make the investments. So uh, it's incredible. This is a guy who could have easily been a multi, multi-billionaire and chose not to, by the way, he, he, he structured Vanguard. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this man is what I consider a saint and, uh, I'm, I'm always flattered to be mentioned in the same sentence as Jack Bogle, but again, it's the difference between a white hot sun and a candle. You exchanged a series of emails with Jack before his death, and in one of them, you write to him, you have long been my personal hero, and I am not a fellow given to having personal heroes. Would it surprise you if many in the financial independence community would write the same to you? At this point, no, it wouldn't surprise me because many in the financial community have written that to me. I still find it surprising to be thought of in that way. And I have to correct you a little bit. I, I didn't actually exchange a series of emails with Jack Bogle. Um, he was kind enough to send me an email about my book. And it came out of the kind of a funny story. I was in Ecuador. Uh, we were staying in a little seaside village of San Clemente. We were checking out of the hotel to, to get the cab, to go to the airport, to go to Quito for uh, the Chautauqua that year. And I thought, oh, before I leave the internet connection here at the hotel, I'll check my email one last time. And sure enough, a new email was showing up, and I clicked on it to see what it was. And I was dumbfounded to find that it was a very, very nice email from, from Mr. Bogle and very complimentary about my book. And of course I responded to that email and the quote you, you mentioned is, is in there, but that was the extent of the exchange. So uh, I, I wish I'd had a closer relationship with him, but I'm honored that he was even aware of my book. We all know Jack Bogle for pretty much introducing us and inventing index investing. I've noticed, JL, when I talk to you, one of the few things where I really see a visceral reaction in you is when we talk about different manners of investing, whether we talk about single stock investing versus index investing. Why is this so visceral for you? I, I didn't, as it came across that way, I spent most of my investing career being a stock picker or, and by extension, trying to pick mutual fund managers who would outperform the market, who were, of course, stock pickers themselves. So I was either picking stocks myself or trying to pick people who were picking stocks. Jack Bogle started the first index fund in 1975. 
just by coincidence, that happened to be the first year I started investing. I didn't hear about index funds for a decade, so I didn't hear about them until the mid-80s. And then I resisted the idea for 10, 15 years to my to my great embarrassment and, and to my cost. I think the problem is that indexing is a little bit counterintuitive, and it just seems that it should be easy to beat the unmanaged market, if you will, and I certainly thought so. And the other thing is that I achieved financial independence picking individual stocks and picking mutual fund managers. So it's not like it doesn't work at all. It just doesn't work as well. And it's a lot more work to try to do it. So if I come across, if you see some sort of visceral response in me, it, it's probably my embarrassment at the lost years of having something that was simply better, more effective, simpler, and easier put in front of me and not having the sense to pick it up for a decade or a decade and a half. I almost feel like people in the community think of you as Mr. VTSAX. Is that too simple? I mean, by focusing on this one fund, are we missing some of the overall importance of broad-based indexing? Well, I think VTSAX is Vanguard's total stock market index fund. So in my mind, it's kind of the epitome of a broad-based index fund. It, you own VTSAX and you own virtually every publicly traded company in the United States of America. Huge, broad diversification by definition, and you only have to make one purchase. So of all the funds that are available out there, including all the funds at Vanguard, this is the one that I think best suits my needs. It's the one that I most, that I suggest that my daughter invest in and that in fact she's invested in. And of course, by extension, then if anybody's paying attention to what I have to say beyond that, that's, that's the recommendation that I make. I think it's all you need until the time comes when you might want to add some bonds. And then there's the total bond market fund, which is uh, VBTLX. Could you see in the future a set of circumstances which makes the primacy of broad-based indexes less likely? Could you see a world changing such that index funds wouldn't be the way to go anymore? You know, that's a great question, and it's one that I've, I've given a lot of thought to. And the answer is no. I I don't see a world where indexing stops working or becomes suboptimal, at least not a world based on the capitalist economies that we have at the moment. I do, however, see a time where it might make sense to step beyond just the United States. So I'm somewhat famous or infamous for suggesting that you don't need international funds. My thinking on that is mostly that because with VTSAX or an S&P 500 fund, you own the top major U.S. companies, and they are by definition international companies, you benefit from the growth of the world economies that are, that are going on. But I also see that from the end of World War II, when the United States was the only industrialized company not left in ashes, and we dominated the world economy, probably 90 percent, 90 plus percent of the world economy. Well, from that moment on, our share of that pie has gotten steadily smaller. It's not a bad thing. That simply means that the rents of the world rather rebuilt from the ashes. And we now have about half of that pie. It's a much, much bigger pie. 
I think as the rest of the world gets economically stronger as what we used to call the third world, as those economies grow and prosper, which has been the trend over the last couple of decades, then that pie will get steadily bigger and bigger. And the portion of it that the U.S. economy represents will be smaller, even though the U.S. economy can be bigger for it. So at some point, and I'm not sure when this is, it'll probably make sense to own a world fund. And in fact, I say to my international readers, uh, and when I was traveling in Europe, I had many of these conversations, that if I were living anywhere other than the United States, I would probably already be in a world fund. I'm comfortable being in the U.S. because I, I'm so close to this market. So that's one of the reasons I'm still in, in VTSAX. But I certainly wouldn't recommend any other single country. If you were in any other country in the world, I wouldn't recommend that you only own a fund that invests in that country. The United States is really the only country where you can get away from it. So I think that's a change I see coming. When it comes, I don't think it's going to affect my lifetime. Uh, I do talk to my daughter about that, and I've told her that it's something she wants to pay attention to, and at some point she might want to make the shift. But I see it as being a fairly gradual thing. I'd like to pivot here a little bit more to the idea of financial independence as a topic. Would you classify financial independence as a movement? I suppose so, and I suppose it depends on how you define a movement. You know, when I was young and building my own, what I thought of as FU money at the time, by the way, I achieved financial independence without knowing what it was or even knowing there was a term for it. I didn't actually come across the term FI or financial independence until after I started my blog. So yeah, I think in that sense, it's it's a concept that's become popular. I think the idea of living frugally, saving money and putting aside for your future is, you know, that's been around for centuries. But now, you know, it's become kind of fashionable. And I suppose from that point of view, it's become a movement. Tell me, what do you think jail is going to happen with financial independence over the next 10 years? Partially, that depends on what happens over the next 10 years. I would like to see financial independence, the idea of it and the practice of it spread across a broader range of the population. Uh, and I know a lot of my, my friends and colleagues in the, in the financial independence world are working to make that happen. I think the growth is going to be slow. I think we're always going to be unicorns. A lot of people disagree with me on that. And I think that at some point, the market is going to take a dive. Since I've started writing my blog, and really since 2009, when the market bottomed in the last debacle, it's pretty much done nothing but go up. And that's been a wonderful ride. But that also coincides with the growth of this FI community. And it occurs to me that a lot of people who are enthusiastic about it have never lived through a sharp downturn. And it is brutal. I have a feeling that when the next one comes, and I'm not predicting it because I don't know when it's going to come. It could be happening as we're recording this. It could be years away. But I do know that at some point it will happen because it always happens. That's the nature of the market. It's something best ignored, by the way. It's not really a big deal. It will pass and the market will go on to new heights. But for those who haven't experienced it, it, it will be gut-wrenching. And I have a feeling that it will take the bloom off the financial independence rose. You bring up a good point 
that many of us, especially the younger ones, maybe haven't yet gone through a real market downturn. Talk to me about your experiences during the two major downturns of the last few decades. Yeah, so this is something that concerns me. And I wonder at times whether you can learn how to tolerate a major downturn simply by reading about it, reading what I've written, for instance, and what I say to do, which is basically nothing, stay the course, don't make any changes, and understand that it's, a, if anything, a buying opportunity, and the market always recovers. And that's easy and comforting to read, but I'm not sure that people can really, without actually experiencing that themselves, and so, for instance, in 1987, there was Black Monday. Black Monday was the biggest percentage market drop in the history of the U.S. stock market. It includes the Great Depression. It includes what happened in 07, 08, 09. Uh, it was 25%, 24, 25% in a day the market went down. And um, it was it was absolutely brutal. And at the time, I knew that you should stay the course. I mean, I knew this stuff in my head. I didn't fully accept it in my gut, so I didn't sell right away. But then after Black Monday, the market continued to drift down and continued to drift down and continued to drift down, and it was, it was like water torture. It was initially this incredibly painful experience. And anyway, I finally, several months later, I lost my nerve. I've written about this on the blog, by the way. And if I didn't sell out at the absolute bottom, it was close enough that it didn't matter. And, of course, the market, as it always does, promptly turned around and began to go back up. And by the time I bought back in, it had surpassed, you know, the the height that it, it had with Black Monday. So that was my learning experience. And it was that experience that I looked to when we were going through the tech collapse in 2000. And then, you know, what happened in 07, 08, because I'm not immune to being made nervous by these things, especially, you know, 07, 08 was an exceptional moment in history. And to put that in perspective, you know, I, I hear people and I see people say, well, yeah, if my portfolio cut in half, I, I wouldn't like it, but I could deal with it. That'd be okay. And I say, all right, that makes sense. Now let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Let's suppose that in 2007, you had a portfolio of a million two. And a couple of years later, uh, in 2009, beginning of 2009, that's been cut in half, which is, of course, what actually happened. And now your portfolio is worth 600000 And you're saying, you'd be okay with that. You could tolerate that, and I'll take you at your word. But let's add another point to it, and that is that while that was the bottom, the bottom came in March of 2009, nobody knew at the time that that was the bottom. And in fact, everybody I was talking to at the time, and I was talking to a lot of people, were predicting that it was going to go much lower. The most common prediction was it was going to go down another two-thirds. So now take yourself back to March of 09, which is at the bottom. Nobody knows it's at the bottom. You've lost half your money. You're at 600000 and everywhere you turn, people are telling you, you can expect that that's going to be 200000 You still stay the course? That's the question you need to be asking yourself. And this also gets back to the point that trying to listen to other people's predictions will make you more and more and more upset 
I mean, have you ever found any value in reading the predictions in the newspaper, et cetera? Point well taken. Nobody can predict the future. And as I said a moment ago, I'm, I can tell you absolutely that the market will have another downturn and it'll have corrections, which are 10%. It'll have bear markets, which are around 20%. It'll probably have a collapse at some point, which is 30, 40, 50%. But I have no idea when that's going to happen. And people who say they know are, they don't know. And what you need to understand, by the way, is that any given moment, there are so many people making so many predictions that whatever happens, somebody will have predicted it. It doesn't mean they have predictive powers. It just means that they happen to be the one that predicted what happened. So I put it this way. Imagine that the lottery is up to some enormous amount of money, and you read that somebody got the winning numbers and walked away with tens of millions of dollars. Your reaction isn't to that, oh, so-and-so who won the lottery, they must have figured out, how to predict winning lottery numbers. No, you recognize on the face of it that that's somebody who got extraordinarily lucky. And nobody turns to them and says, what are the next winning lottery numbers going to be? Because we know it was luck. It's the same thing with people predicting what the market's going to do. When the market does something dramatic, you can be guaranteed that there will be somebody who correctly predicted they were going to do it, just like somebody gets winning lottery numbers doesn't mean that they have predictive powers. It means they got lucky. And it's important to understand because it doesn't mean that they can tell you what's going to happen next, which is what would be valuable. But nobody can do that. I want to go from stock predicting to a completely different kind. I've been predicting for quite a while now that the face of financial independence is changing. If you go back a few years ago, most of us thought of your typical financial independence practitioner as a white male in their 30s, probably interested in engineering or computers, fairly high salary. Do you believe the face of financial independence is changing? Is it still that same persona that we thought it was before? I don't know that it was ever that initial persona. You know, I think back to the original Chautauquas, and as I mentioned, Chautauquas from the very first one in 2013 have always been wonderfully diverse events across all measures of diversity. So when I started actually meeting real-life FI people, my impression has always been that it's a community of, of great diversity. And that never surprised me because money doesn't care what your sexual orientation is. And it doesn't care what color you are. And it doesn't care what religion you are. It doesn't care how old you are. It doesn't care if you're rich. It doesn't care if you're poor. If you treat money well, if you invest it well, if you treat it with respect, then it will do the same for you. So if you were born wealthy and you treat money with disrespect, it will run away from you. If you are born poor and you learn about money and you learn how to understand money and invest it and treat it with respect, it will come to you. And that's one of the beauties of money is that there's no prejudice in it. And so my impression of the FI community has always been that it's, it, it attracts people who are interested in their personal freedom. And those people come from all different corners of humanity. Now, what is different, I think, is that you're seeing more and more bloggers and podcasters of, you know, diversity. But I think that's more a function of simply there are more and more of them out there. Uh, whereas initially there were, you know, there were only a handful, as is always the case with anything as it starts. 
So I'm going to do a really annoying interviewer thing here. I'm going to ask you a question you already tried to answer, but I want to push you a little farther on this. What do you hope your legacy will be in the financial independence community? <laughs> that really is annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I'm not being falsely modest when I say I don't think about a legacy. I just, it's not. You're the first person who's ever asked me about it, and I've just, I just never have thought in those terms. And in fact, as we talked about earlier, and I've said this many times, I, I've only ever wanted to convince one person that my investment approach was worth following, and that's my daughter. And I was very intently committed to trying to convince her, and I'm gratified to say that I have convinced her. So I guess to the extent that I care about a legacy, it's that She's on this financial independence path. Now, in the process of convincing her and writing the blog and Chautauqua's in the book and what have you, it by the feedback I get, I've wound up helping a lot of other people along that path. And I guess that's a legacy of sorts. But if I'm honest, that and while I'm pleased by that and flattered when people thank me for it, I, that was ne never my intention. That's all kind of accidental. So... Maybe that's why I don't think of it in terms of a of a legacy. But yeah, so I, I don't know what the legacy will be. Maybe you can write my eulogy and mail it to me. I'll start thinking about that now, but I have a feeling we have quite a while before you have to worry about such things. Tell me, is there anything you think the public misunderstands about you? Wow, that's an interesting question that, that I've I've never thought about. I, I don't know because I'm not, I don't have a really good sense of what the public thinks about me. You know, the people I meet are people who come to Chautauqua and they, by definition, like what I've done. They like my writings and they're in favor of it. So, but that's not the public overall. That's probably not even the readership of my blog overall. I could suppose I could look at the comments on the blog, which are almost uniformly positive. But again, that's not necessarily an objective sample. So um, I'm not quite sure what what the public thinks, so I'm not sure what they got wrong. I want to end this interview by going back to your first blog post. If I have it correctly, your first blog post was a story about the monk and the minister. So if I can retell it, probably not as artfully as you did. There were once two boys who grew up together and were friends, and they went their separate ways. And one became a minister surrounded by riches and well-off, and the other became a monk who lived very frugally and had very basic clothes and things. And the two met up as adults, and the minister looks at the monk and says, if you could learn to cater to the king, you wouldn't have to live on rice and beans. And then the monk turns back to the minister. And what does he say, J.L.? He says, minister, if you could learn to live on rice and beans, you wouldn't have to cater to the king. So I, I know back in 2011, you identified very clearly with the monk. And I'm looking at life today for you as an outsider looking in, coming up to 2020. And you are a man in the last 10 years who's written a blog who's written a book, who's got involved in endeavors like Chautauqua. We're sitting here at Kabanda. You just bought a new car, which you've named Steve, Steve too. And you've spent 
what, the last six months traveling the world and Europe, you just came back, you're going to be going out on the road again. So I would repeat that kind of question, who do you most identify with coming up to 2020? The monk, the minister, or or the king? Uh, Well, that's an interesting question. Again, one I've never been asked. So I think that in terms of the trappings that I have in my life, even in those days when I, back when I wrote that post, I am probably more along the lines of being a minister because when you live like a monk and you save 50% of your income and you invest it over the decades, you're going to, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're going to wind up rich. I've never, I've always been naturally frugal. It just is comes naturally to me. And it's been very useful and functional because being frugal is what freed up the capital to invest. But of course, there's a certain irony that as as you practice this over the decades, you become wealthier and wealthier and have less and less of a need of, of being frugal. So yeah, I mean, I, but I've never been, been frugal just for the sake of being frugal. Um, you know, my attitude has always been, if you save 50% of your income, you're fine. And when I made $10,000 a year, I lived on five. When I made a hundred thousand dollars a year, I lived on 50. I didn't say, well, I'm only going to continue to live on five. And I guess I think of it the same way. It's actually still hard for, for us to spend money. You mentioned I bought a new car, which we did. Candidly, we could have bought a much more expensive car. Uh, I have a beach house. We could have bought a much more expensive beach house. I say that only to illustrate that it's hard for us to spend money because it does go against our natural tendencies. But on the other hand, at this point in my life, I have more money than time. And I'm trying to make that more a part of my decision-making process. Uh, and at the same time, though, it was it, buying the new car, for instance, and I've written about this was hard because we really liked the old car. And there is something about having an old car that's just enormously appealing to me. But functionally and giving the amount of travel we do and what have you, a new car made more logical sense. But it wasn't the most comfortable emotional decision to make, actually. I think in our lives, maybe at different points, we get to be all of them. Sometimes we're the monk, especially at the beginning of our journey when we don't have much. Sometimes we're the minister when we have things we want, when we ignore this idea of opportunity costs, when we indulge ourselves because that brings us joy. And sometimes we're the kings because we get to a place where we've saved enough and now we can live and we can do it comfortably and we can do it within our means and we make choices, but they're rational, smart choices. So I'm going to end this interview the way we end every interview here on the What's Up Next podcast. JL Collins, where can people find you and what's up next in your life? Well, the blog is probably the best way to find me, and that's jlcollinsnh.com. I don't know what's what's next in my life, actually. It's, you know, life is pretty good the way it is. We're mostly nomadic. We spend some of our time at Kabanda, which we enjoy. We're hoping to spend next summer here. That's the plan. We'll do Chautauquas again in Croatia next year. And uh, I don't write on the blog very much, but every now and again, I 
when something uh, is interesting enough to me, like having bought this new car, I'll put up some posts. So mostly I'm just kind of kicking back and watching the waves roll in. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. I'd like to thank my friend, Jail Collins. We're coming to you live from Kabanda. That's a wrap. That was the incredible, talented Jail Collins, a guy I'm glad to call my friend. If you are enjoying the Earn and Invest podcast, please come and check us out at earnandinvest.com. That is our new website. You will be able to look at previous episodes. There's a blog there and connections to our YouTube channel. There are a few videos up on the page. I'd love to have you take a look. The other place to find us on a regular basis is on Facebook in our group page. That's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. Again, that's facebook.com slash groups slash earn and invest. On the Facebook page, we talk about our episodes. We talk about articles. We talk about things very similar to what you will hear on the Earn and Invest podcast. We love to have you as part of our community. Become part of the conversation. And from time to time, we have free giveaways, including books, free counseling sessions, all sorts of stuff. I try to get every person who comes on the episode to donate something so that I can give it away free to you guys. So I hope to see you there. Remember, earnandinvest.com or facebook.com slash group slash earnandinvest. Two good ways to become part of the Earn and Invest community. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.